This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hang on, my dad's calling me. Hey. Hello to you. We're recording tonight because we couldn't do it last night. So deliver a message to her for me, would you? Well, she's listening right now. Mogab. <laughs> That's my intro. She's. I love you. <laughs> yes. Uh, that was what I needed. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Okay, I found this story, and this is... Just one of the wildest rides I've ever been on. I hate to tell you, you've told me that before. It's a wild one. I can't wait to dive into this. I can't wait till you do an episode and you're like, this is pretty straightforward and uh, I'm not too thrilled about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hopefully that never happens. Yeah. But I'm like, I, surely we've got to run out of these like super wild ones at some point. People be wilden. <laughs> be better humans. There is a podcast about this. It's uh there's a Dateline podcast. I'm not going to give the name of it. Oh. Because there should be two podcasts ours. The second. Mm, I'll give well uh, no. <laughs> I'll give the name of it at the end. Oh. I just I'm worried that it might give things away a little bit. Give it away. So. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Creepers. All right. Today, I'm going to tell you about the murder of Betsy Faria. Oh. On December 27th, 2011, a call came into the 911 dispatch in Troy, Missouri. It was from a man named Russell Faria, and he sounded beyond distraught. So distraught, the 911 operator had a hard time getting what was wrong out of him. But finally, Russ was able to speak. He told the operator that he'd just gotten home from game night at a friend's house to find his wife, Betsy Faria, dead on the floor of the living room. (sighs) He could see the slashes on her wrists, and he told the operator Betsy must have completed suicide. (gasps) Oh. First responders arrived, and eventually it was determined that due to her body temperature and how the blood had coagulated and dried, that she died more than an hour earlier. What they could see right away was that her wrists had not been slashed. The knife had reached the bone. (gasps) And it wasn't just her wrists. Her eye had been stabbed and her throat (gasps) lacerated, bursting the carotid artery. Later, they would also find deep puncture wounds to her abdomen that perforated her lungs, liver, and spleen. A kitchen knife was sticking out of her throat. They could tell right away this was no suicide, and it was ridiculous that Russ thought it was. Right. Okay. I was just about to say before you said that, like, (laughs) he saw the the knife in her throat and was like, yeah, she killed herself? Mm. He saw her body. Russell, I'm, they, I'm so good at you just wait. <laughs> you just wait. They also found slippers with blood on them thrown into the back of Russell's closet, as well as a smear of blood on a light switch in the bedroom. And speaking of Russ, responding officers were growing more and more suspicious of him the more they observed. One said he seemed visibly upset, but there were limited tears coming from his eyes. He appeared to be in a state of panic, having difficulty talking and breathing. On the 911 call, he moaned a lot, said, oh, my God, over and over. But as the operator gave him instructions, he seemed to calm down as he followed them out. When another officer tried to distract him by talking about their neighborhood, he just chatted normally and even laughed. But when Russ was left alone, he seemed to be acting over the top, which to the police those experts of human behavior. I was just about to say that. <laughs> Thought were very suspicious. Okay. I was getting very suspicious as well. But two things. One, we've talked about 
how everyone processes trauma differently. And I'm just coming off of watching the Amanda Knox documentary, which talks mm-hmm. about that. Oh, I yeah. know. Don't. I mean, we will offline get into that. But yeah, it was very hard watching that on a plane, trying to be quiet. Mm-hmm. I was like silent yelling. And then two, I was like, oh, well, he definitely did it. And then I remember you saying we're about to go on all these twists and turns. And if he did it, I feel like we would just be driving in a cul-de-sac. So tell me more. A detective asked Russ why he hadn't embraced his wife's body, the body that was lifeless with her tongue hanging out and <laughs> what kind? Ew. a knife sticking out of her throat. Wait, so, okay. Just Do you know mental her tongue note, was everyone. hanging out? Look, mental note. Yeah, that's what it said. Ew. If you come home to find a person you love dead, make sure you embrace them or the police will suspect you. Okay, listen, all these like corpse cuddles are cute, I guess, but I'm not... I'm not into that. Like, no, I... No. And then you touch the crime scene. Right? Right. You contaminate right. all of that, and then your DNA right. is all over it. Well, and then it's like, what? You embrace your wife's dead body? You're just You're trying to put creep. your DNA on there. Yeah. yeah. So police brought Russ in for an interrogation, and he was adamant. He hadn't been there. He hadn't killed his wife, and he had no idea who would do such a thing. Everyone loved Betsy. Betsy was 42 when she died, and she had this round face and curly hair and pink cheeks and bright blue eyes, and she was a part-time DJ. So I thought you were going to (laughs) say. I know. She seems cool. She had two teenage daughters from a previous relationship, and everyone described her as warm-hearted and scatterbrained and someone that her friends just adored. So basically Hmm. me. (laughs) Yeah. I was just thinking, too – has there ever been a situation when someone passes and they're like, she was all right. You know, it's always like she lit up the room. She lit up the room. Yeah. I feel like it's, <laughs> she was okay. She had a couple friends and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, know it's only good stuff. people that get murdered, obviously. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I do think people tend to focus on the good, but I actually do think Betsy was, because yeah, it is such a cliche. She lit up the room. Everybody loved her. Da, 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 da. But That really seems to be true about Betsy. Well, then don't murder me because everyone's going to come out of the woodwork talking about how much I get on their nerves. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) You know what I mean? All the haters come out. But two years before her death, Betsy had been diagnosed with breast cancer. She'd fought it and she'd even gone into remission and her and Russ had planned a celebration of life cruise and they wanted all their close friends and families to come. But a month before the cruise, they got the worst possible news. Her cancer had come back, and this time it had spread to her liver. She was stage four, and the doctors said it was terminal. Betsy was devastated, but she said she wanted to go on the cruise anyway, and they all went, and they lived it up. Betsy even got to swim with the dolphins, which was something that had been a lifelong dream of hers. So police interrogated Russ the night of her death for 10 hours, And he said that night he hadn't been home. He'd been at a game night that night. It's the same thing he did every Tuesday night. What kind of game was it? It was like a role-playing game, actually. It wasn't Dungeons & Dragons, but it was like similar to that kind of thing. But they actually didn't even end up playing that that night. Anyways, I'll, I'll get into it. So he said he'd worked from home until around five. He then called Betsy, who was staying over at her mother's house, which was like 30 minutes away and really close to where his friend's house was. That was game night. Okay. 
Yeah. And he told her that he'd pick her up on his way back home after the game night. And then he left his house to run a few errands. He stopped for gas at the Conoco in Troy, Missouri, which is where he lives. And he called his mom at 522 to tell her that he wouldn't be able to pick up dinner. He thought he'd have time to like run and pick up something for her, but he forgot he needed to run all these errands. He also needed to pick up dog food and cigarettes. Of course. At 556, he stopped at a convenience store and picked up a couple bottles of Snapple. Ugh. <laughs> I'm sure you don't have what flavor, but I hope it's apple Snapple. I do Snapple, not apple. have what flavor. It's called. Apple Snapple. I love Snapple. Snapple. The little fun facts on the lids. When's mm-hmm. the last time you had a Snapple? I just want to pop it. I'm not a big juice person, so I don't really... If I'm going to get a drink at a convenience store, it's going to be a Diet Coke. Hello. Of course. He got to his friend Mike Corbin's house around 6 p.m. Mike hosted game night every Tuesday. And this particular Tuesday, one of their friends couldn't make it. So they ended up just watching movies instead of playing the role-playing game they usually played. At some time that night, he got a message from Betsy saying that her friend Pam was going to take her home, so he didn't need to worry about picking her up. So Russ stayed a little longer at Mike's, smoked some pot, and then around nine, Russ and two other friends all left at the same time. Did you say how old these people were? In their 40s. Like, Betsy was 42, and... Just saying, these names feel very 1980 for it being 2011, but that makes more sense. Well, Betsy, yeah, Betsy's real name was Elizabeth, but she went by Betsy, which seems like an odd choice to me. But No, that's a very common. I feel like all the Betsy's I know are Elizabeth's. You know what I mean? You know Betsy's? I know quite a few. I don't know a single Betsy. I know several Mm. Elizabeth's, and none of them go by Betsy. Maybe it's a Midwest thing because they're in Missouri. Yeah, that's true. He also stopped at Arby's on the 25-mile drive back to his house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you have feelings about arby's i have feelings about a guy named russell doing <laughs> game night in arby's i just feel this just really tracks <laughs> but detectives weren't buying this alibi wrapped up in this nice shiny bow for them so detectives told russ that they knew for a fact that betsy hadn't completed suicide And they were certain that he knew that. Yeah. They told Russ the medical examiner was still counting stab wounds and he Mm. was already at 25. Why are there so many? Always so many. I know. I knew you were going to say that too. In total, they would find 56 stab wounds on Betsy, many of which were after she was already dead. Which sadly is not as high as half of the other wounds. Right. In other episodes. Right. And Russ said he couldn't think of a single person in their life that would do that to Betsy. Everyone loved her. And the police told Russell, burglars don't stab someone that many times. That's a crime of passion right there. And who commits crimes of passion? Husbands. <laughs> uh, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that they're saying it's not a suicide. Obviously, it's not a suicide. Mm-hmm. But. I think that there have been times when people, I mean, serial killers and stuff, right? I That stab more than, I mean. I think it would be rare that somebody would break into someone's house, to a stranger's house, and stab them 56 times. Well, I mean, you're the expert on all these things. (laughs) I am not an expert. Let's let's cut (laughs) cut that. (laughs) 
Not a, <laughs> hashtag not an expert. <laughs> I'm just telling the stories here. <laughs> just two non-experts weighing in. No. No. So detectives brought in a few other people from Betsy's life to interview, including Pam Hupp, the friend that had brought Betsy home that night. She'd known Betsy for about 10 years since they'd previously worked at State Farm together. And they'd lost touch over the years, but after Betsy's cancer diagnosis, Pam had become a huge support system for Betsy. They saw each other almost every day, and Pam was usually the one that would take Betsy to her chemo treatments and sit with her. Where's Russ? I guess he's at work. Like, he usually doesn't take her because I guess he's working. Once Betsy's diagnosis went from remission to terminal, she started to get serious about thinking about the best way to make sure that her two teenage daughters were taken care of after she died. Having worked in insurance, Betsy had a good life insurance policy, but she was worried about leaving all of the money to her teenage daughters, who she thought would be reckless with it. And she also worried that her husband would just spend it all. (laughs) So Pam told detectives that Betsy had asked her to be the beneficiary of her life insurance. Oh, this bitch. (laughs) With the promise that she would give the money to Betsy's daughters when they were older. Mm. Russ described Pam to police as someone that was really nice, someone he considered a friend too. But Pam didn't see Russ that way. And what Pam had to tell detectives about him was very disturbing oh was it pamela was it (laughs) go ahead go ahead go ahead go ahead okay go ahead pam told them she dropped betsy off around seven the night she was killed and that she'd had a creepy vibe when she dropped her off the house looked dark and the doors were unlocked she thought russ had come home early because a silver nissan maxima was in the driveway Pam told police that Russ had told Betsy not to bring her purse with her to chemo, so she didn't have her keys, and she told them that he was often controlling. She told the detectives that Russ had a drinking problem, and he was always talking about the money that he'd get from Betsy's life insurance when she died. Wait, I have so many things to say. Mm. What? Okay. Okay. Oh, my God. First of all, how does she know all the doors and stuff? Like, did she go in with her? Like, I'm thinking she's dropping her off. At first, she said she didn't go in, but then she said, actually, I did go in. So So whose car was in the driveway? Well, it was Russell's car that was in the driveway. But, mm -mm. mm-mm. So Pam told police that Betsy had told her the week before that she was sending her an email detailing how Russ would put a pillow over her face and tell her that's what it felt like to die but that Pam hadn't received the email. She said that Russ and Betsy had separated like six or seven times in just the time that she'd known Betsy, which who's was sending, like 10 years. Who's sending that in email? Like it's 2011. I feel like shoot shoot your friend a text. Yeah, but also she like told her in person. This is what the email is going to say. Russ is described as the type of guy that has a trademark fedora. He liked to fish and ride motorcycles, and he loved his wife and his mama. He worked in IT. But detectives saw Russ's game nights as him acting out dark fantasies in these role-playing games. Wait, did you say he had a trademark fedora? Oh, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Now I'm out (laughs) on him, too. They also knew that Betsy and Russ's marriage had been rocky, and Russ's behavior was concerning to them. (laughs) Because he actively wears a fedora. (laughs) 
Like, <laughs> if you saw pictures of this guy, you would be like, oh, no, okay, that tracks. That Okay, but, out. like, I'm sure I will see photos, right? Like, you're going to yeah. provide that to the I'll post the them. I'll post them on the gram. Do it for the gram. <laughs> they gave Russ a polygraph test that night, and he failed. They also had some physical evidence against Russ, like the bloody slipper in his closet. Adding in Pam's story of Russ's cruelty and greed, detectives knew they had their man, and Russ knew he wanted a lawyer. Ah, uh, that's... That is all accurate. Yes. And I feel like it doesn't stop there. On January 4th, Russell Faria was charged with first-degree murder and armed criminal action. Headlines ran about their marital problems leading to Betsy's murder, and a friend was quoted in the article saying Betsy had been thinking of leaving her husband because she was becoming increasingly uncomfortable. Ugh. Russ hired defense attorney Joel Schwartz, and he took one look at this case and could not believe what he was seeing. In Schwartz's opinion, Russ's alibi was practically airtight. Betsy's time of death had been determined to be at least an hour before he called 911, and cell phone data put Russ nearly 30 miles away at his friend's house. Russ had four witnesses that all said he was there until 9 o'clock. There was security camera footage showing him at the Conoco station and the convenience store on the way to his friend's house, and it showed him in the same clothes that he was wearing later that night when police came to his house that had no blood on them. Oh, wow. All right. Case closed. He'd also had an Arby's receipt in his truck stamped at <laughs> 909 from his way home. If I've learned anything from this podcast... Other than keep your receipts, mm. it's I'm making it laminate stop. them, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> anytime I go anywhere, I'm stopping somewhere before, like, oh, I need to run to the grocery store. Oh, I gotta get gas first. Oh, I'm gonna head home. Oh, let me get a Starbucks. Like, I uh -huh. am stopping on every errand to get some type of receipt to prove where I was. Really, I think what we just need is a dash cam. Like, we just need to get a dash cam. Yeah, that's fair. I just need a crew to follow me around and make my own reality TV show. I used to imagine a little mouse with a little a little camera over his shoulder following me around when I was in third grade. Did I ever tell you that? Okay, no, but I'm glad you added in the third grade part because I was like, this is weird. I was in third grade. There was a little mouse. He would follow me around. He had a big camera on his shoulder. Okay. I can still like, picture it. I like it the motion you're doing like he's carrying, like you're carrying a boom box. <laughs> yeah, that's the what the camera is. Yes, exactly. One oh of those big God. cameras, you know? Yeah. Now I'm going to picture that. Now I'm going to picture a mouse following you. <laughs> <sighs> he's there. But what really shocked Short. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You put that out there. That's recorded. That's in the world. It's in the archives. We're going to cut that. No, we're not. I don't like that you have master control where it's cut. That stays or I walk. <laughs> okay. This is going to be but a really fun episode for you to edit with your dad and then Kia. Kia's kids at Build-A-Bear. You got a mouse on your shoulder. Jesus. Uh, How are we not but, making money off of this yet? <laughs> With this content? <laughs> yeah, it's proprietary. But what really shocked Schwartz was how easy the police had gone on Pam Hupp. I'm telling you, I, I knew, I was trying to like write it in a way that you wouldn't automatically suspect Pam. But the second you hear she's Betsy's beneficiary, you're like, oh, what? <laughs> 
Well, and not to mention, this is like episode six of white women who got away with it, as you know. That well, so. and she was the last person to have seen the victim alive. She was the sole beneficiary of her one hundred and fifty thousand dollar life insurance policy, a change that was made four days before Betsy's death. Oh my god! Did Pamela not think that she, that was going to look suspicious? Uh, no. Watching her interview tapes was like watching a couple friends hanging out. When the police asked about the life insurance, something that should seem odd to anyone, especially when it's someone with close family ties, like Betsy has a husband, she's got two daughters, and she's got parents that she's close to. They just seemed to take her story of wanting to make sure her family didn't blow it at face value. They were like, Mm -hmm. makes sense, moving on. How did... Pam hadn't even gone on the celebration of life cruise with Betsy. Something that all of her close friends and family attended, but they were supposed to be so close that she'd leave all that money to her? That's my question. Yeah. The details of her story also changed several times, and she had no alibi. So Schwartz just couldn't believe they weren't looking into her more. Yeah, same. On Tuesday, December 27th, Pam had planned to pick Betsy up from her mother's house to take her to chemo, but Betsy had texted her to say not to bother. Her mom's friend Bobby, who was an old babysitter of Betsy's and they were really close, she wanted to take her and they'd already left. Pam showed up anyway, claiming not to have gotten the text, but that wasn't true because she'd replied to the text with a bummer. (gasps) So Pam drove to the treatment center anyway and sat with Betsy and Bobby during the treatment. And Bobby said Betsy was really surprised to see Pam there. So does Pam not take her all the time? She does, but she told her not to come. Right. Oh, that's why she was surprised. Okay. Pam must have been a really good friend to Betsy because she went way out of her way to drive her around this day on the day that she died. After the chemo treatment, Pam drove back to her home in... O'Fallon, Missouri, (gasps) which is where Lori Drew lived from our Megan Meyer episode, if you recall. I do. It's such a small town. I was shocked when that name popped up in my research. There were two murderous little bandits. Old ladies. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Middle-aged ladies. Pam ate dinner with her husband, and then she went back to Betsy's mom's house in Lake St. Louis, which is about 15 minutes away to drive Betsy to her house in Troy, which is about 30 minutes from O'Fallon. All when Betsy had already planned to have a ride home that night with Russ, whose friend lived right near Betsy's mom's in Lake St. Louis. These are like little towns that are all right next to each other. Hmm, I wish I had a map, like some type of chart of sorts. (laughs) Why is she obsessed with toting her everywhere? Right. While Pam was driving Betsy home, they called Mark, Pam's husband, and they left a voicemail on his phone. And you can hear Betsy on the voicemail wishing Mark a happy new year. Pam told police she didn't go inside the house. But then she told police she just went in and turned on the hall light. But then she said she went to the bedroom so Betsy could show her a new jewelry cabinet Russ had given her for Christmas. She's basically covering her bases for where the murderer had been in the house that night. Hmm. She said when she left, Betsy was laying down on the couch under a blanket. And then she said, actually, Betsy might have walked her to the door. Yeah, that's probably makes more sense because she'd probably lock it behind you. Right. You know, she told police that she'd called Betsy to tell her that she'd gotten home. But then she said, well, I called her when I was almost home. 
but cell phone records showed that she called at 727 and she was still in Troy, where Betsy lived. But Betsy never called her back. Pam Hmm. said she got home and texted Betsy, but when she never responded, she got worried that Betsy was mad at her for not staying. And so she called Betsy's mom and told and told her that she was concerned about Betsy's mental state. So her mom also tried calling Betsy. No one could get a hold of her. And so Pam went to bed. The next day, detectives questioned Pam's husband, Mark, but they allowed Pam to sit in during the interview. What? Why is no one following rules ever? They're not because they're, they're treating her like a witness. They're not treating her like... Yes. She's the number one. I don't understand how she even became a beneficiary in the first place. Like, that would be my first question. Right. They The paperwork was all in order. I know, but who filled that out? And she's not even close enough to go on this cruise. Right. I mean, it feels weird. Yeah, and and there are some witnesses that say that Betsy had filled this form out and – Pam signed it. I I don't know why and I don't know how. At gunpoint, probably. <laughs> Mark told police that he'd been home on the 27th and that he'd left his phone in his truck so he missed the calls from Pam and Betsy when they'd gotten to Betsy's house, the ones that said Happy New Year. And then he promptly shut up and Pam did all the rest of the talking for his interview. So... Mm. Who is Pam Hupp, and why is everyone in the legal and law enforcement community falling over themselves to protect her? People that knew her in high school described her as the kind of person you wouldn't mind hanging out with. (laughs) (laughs) She was confident. Nothing really seemed to bother her. She loved investigating people, figuring them all out. But it seems no one knew her at all. She never talked about her own problems, except for her various plans to sue people and her chronic back, leg, and neck pain. Oh. They were so disabling that she couldn't work, and so she got monthly disability checks. But she also goes to Zumba, and she can walk just fine, so. So, like, is she, all that pain wasn't, like, the high, that wasn't high school, right, you're saying? No, no, this is, this is like later. later. This is, that. like, after she was working at State Farm. She mm-hmm. filed for disability because of her chronic back, neck, and leg pain. pain. But they have her on video. Girl. She can walk just fine, and she even went to Zumba classes. Zumba's no joke, as we've established previously. Mm-hmm. In high school, she was a cheerleader with a lot of friends. She never started drama. She was not a gossiper. Her senior year, she started dating this guy, the kind of guy everyone liked. He played soccer and golf and was a member of the National Honor Society. They went to their senior prom together, and soon, Pam was pregnant. So she did what she thought she was supposed to do. She got married three months after her senior prom, and they moved into a crappy apartment to raise a baby girl (laughs) while all her friends got excited about going to college. Yep. She was married for six years, and soon after her divorce, she married Mark Hupp. He played minor league baseball for the Texas Rangers, but but he never got drafted to the majors, so he became a carpenter. Pam and Mark had a son together, and they moved around a bit before landing in O'Fallon, Missouri, where they started flipping houses as a side hustle. 
It seems like Pam called the shots with Mark, but he didn't seem to mind. She loved tabloids and murder mysteries and American Idol, and she never really got mad. (laughs) She was financially driven and cheap. If she thought something would cost her money, she didn't want to do it. Not even vacations. She worked at several different insurance agencies before applying for disability. Her boss at State Farm saw Pam as someone very level-headed and very positive. She was a really hard worker and really good at her job. But he also said there were times where she'd say things that just struck him as odd. Wait. She works at State Farm. That's where this stuff came from. Mm -hmm. Duh. Stupid. Yep. Ugh. She'd drop hints that she was involved with some organization that required her to have a high security clearance, like the CIA or something. Also, employees' cars were constantly getting keyed at work and a ton in Pam's neighborhood as well. What? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. This, <laughs> I can't. Like, pick one thing. You killing people, <laughs> you doing insurance fraud, you keying people's car. Right. And despite having just covered this town in our Megan Meyer episode, it actually is a very safe town. And the subdivision was brand new when Pam first moved in. I can't get over her. She's got to pick like an M.O. Yeah. But the neighbors said weird stuff was happening in the neighborhood apart from the cars getting keyed. Someone had left a pile of bloody animal bones in someone's yard. There were anonymous letters being left at neighbors' houses that were just really mean. Like, nothing bigger ever happened, so the neighbors just kind of shrugged off these weird incidents. The neighborhood cool teens probably got blamed for all that. Probably. So Pam's alibi for the night of Betsy's murder is basically non-existent. But Russ did have an alibi. He had the four other people at game night that night, all swearing he'd been with them until nine that evening. Police estimated, (laughs) this drives me insane. Police Mm. estimated that it would have taken Russ 23 minutes to drive the 25 miles home. And they figured this out by speeding down the highway and even driving down the shoulder of the highway to get around traffic. And they also didn't stop at Arby's like Russ had. Okay, the Arby's is key. Yes, with a receipt in his truck to prove it stamped at 909. Also, like driving down the shoulder, that hardly counts. Right. And so to police, Russ could have made it home in 23 minutes, giving him nine whole minutes to stab Betsy 55 times and clean up before calling 911. He had none of Betsy's blood on his clothes, his body, or under his fingernails, even though he was still wearing the same T-shirt and jeans he'd been seen wearing on security cameras earlier when he'd bought the Snapple and the cigarettes. Okay. He had Snapple and Arby's curly fries in the same night, which both of those release endorphins, and endorphins make people happy. And happy, and people, happy people just don't, don't, kill, don't, the, kill, people. don't kill their husbands or their yeah. wives. <laughs> no one is ending a night that peaks at Snapple and curly fries with murder. You're just not. You're going to go to bed fat, sassy, full, and you're going to be fine. You're not going to kill you know people. What? You've had Snapple like, and Like, you've had all these theories about pizza parties and now Snapple. You haven't been wrong yet. Exactly. So. I know. <laughs> maybe they should start looking at that. Yeah. Someone else go get Arby's curly fries and a Snapple apple and tell me how good you feel after. Right. But instead of his alibi eliminating him as a suspect, right. police 
They just made police even more suspicious. They were very suspicious about all these stops that Russ made. Why did he go to a different gas station to get cigarettes than the one he'd filled up at? He must have been doing that to get on all the security cameras to establish his alibi. Or he ran out of cigarettes. Like maybe he had one. At the, you know, and then he ran out at game night and then on his way home or whatever. No, he, this was all on the way to game night. Two. He had to buy, he had to stop and get all these things like the dog food and the cigarettes and the Snapple, but, and the gas. But Russ always bought his cigarettes from that gas station because they were almost a dollar cheaper than the place where he mm-hmm. filled up. Yeah. Not to mention all of that happened before 6 p.m. And they knew for a fact that Betsy was alive at 7.05 because she was on that voicemail on Mark Hupp's phone. And that was at 7.05. And you can hear her voice. So she's definitely still alive at 7.05 when at 6 p.m. he's on security cameras heading to game night. The one piece of physical evidence they had against Russ was the blood all over Russ's slippers, the ones police had found in the back of his closet. But Russ's attorney, Schwartz, noticed that the slippers hadn't walked through the blood. The blood was all up the sides of the slippers, but not on the top or the bottom. Uh It didn't make sense that Russ would murder Betsy and then change into the slippers and then clean himself off so well that there was no blood anywhere else on him except for the slippers that he'd put on after he'd killed her. Well, and I'm also not buying the whole like, oh, Russ's slippers. I mean, I I live with someone else and what's mine is yours. Like, I'm wearing your slippers. If there's a jacket, like the sweatshirt that I'm wearing right now is not even mine. Like, but right. Russ's slippers, like, okay, but yeah, but they just I had blood on them and they were in the back of the closet. But Schwartz right. was certain that someone was framing him. So he started going through all the statements that Pam had made to police. She'd made it seem like this really big deal that Russ had told Betsy not to bring her purse and how the house was dark but unlocked as if someone was waiting for her inside <laughs> yeah. and how his car was in the driveway. But Russ said the whole purse thing wasn't even true. They'd gone to his parents for Christmas, and Betsy didn't bother to bring her purse. But then she decided to spend Monday night at her mom's. So she didn't have her keys. So Russ told her that he'd leave the house unlocked for her when she went home on Tuesday. Much less exciting than the nefarious way Pam tried to make it seem. Schwartz saw another report of an interview with a friend of Betsy's named Rita Wolfe. Rita told police that Betsy called her at five that day and told her she left her keys at home and she'd have to call Russ to leave the door open for her. Hmm. Not this whole Russ won't let me bring my purse because he's so controlling. Then Schwartz looked at this polygraph test that Russ failed. Again, never agree to take a polygraph. They do not help you. Ever. They'll never clear you. No. Tell the detectives, nope, I listen to true crime podcasts. I know I shouldn't take it. Take all that because it cannot help me one bit. Kristen and Mogab said. Mm. Schwartz was alarmed at what he saw in the summary of the polygraph. Russ had been up for 32 hours when they'd given it to him. <gasps> and he'd been smoking pot at his friend's house. Yeah. No polygraph examiner that knows what they're doing in the slightest would have performed that polygraph under those kinds of conditions. So Schwartz started wondering if this had been a fake or faux polygraph. Now, I've never heard of this before, ever, until this case. But apparently, faux polygraphs are a real thing, and they're perfectly legal. Wait, what does that mean? 
It means that they're basically like giving you a polygraph test to fake it. They're faking this polygraph test on you to try to get you to confess. So they like give you basically a fake one and they tell you that it said something else. Then I really yeah, did. that's kind of my understanding of them. Okay, like well, I said, I've like never heard of these before. Shady. Yeah, and but it's perfectly legal, except they have to let the defense know that it was a fake test. And uh. Schwartz never got a notice. So he asked for video of the test and was told there was no video. He asked for the raw data from the test and never received it. The only thing he ever got from this polygraph was a signed consent form and this summary that said there was significant, consistent physiological responses indicative of deception. Show me the data. Yeah. And again, you're giving it to them under poor circumstances. That could be because he was tired and he'd been up for 32 hours. That Mm -hmm. could be he was high, like he'd been on drugs. Russ, along with all four of the alibi witnesses, all of them offered to take a second polygraph. But the Lincoln County prosecutor said no, he wouldn't let him do it. So Schwartz went back to Pam's account of December 27th, and he could not believe all the inconsistencies in her statements. Could he not? Because I did, and I'm not an expert. I'm literally the true kind newbie. (laughs) It was clear to Schwartz that Pam didn't know what car Russ was driving, so she would just throw out different cars they had and say that that was the one she saw. So first she said it was the Nissan Maxima in the driveway, which is a sedan. I would know. That was my very first car I ever had. Oh. But then she said it was their Ford Explorer SUV. Not even close. No, not not even close. They cannot be mistaken for each other. Then he went to her story about not going in the house then going in a little, then going all the way to the bedroom, and realized she Then wearing someone's slippers. <laughs> he realized she was placing herself anywhere there might be evidence that she was there, as if she was trying to give an explanation, or why mm-hmm. they might find her DNA or other physical evidence of hers in those areas. Then he looked for the lab reports on Pam. He knew she'd been swabbed for DNA, but they weren't there, and none <gasps> ever came. No one ever confirmed that she was wearing what she said she'd been wearing that night. And her clothes and car were never tested for blood. Mm. Pam said she'd called Betsy and Mark when she was almost home because she wasn't sure how to get home and she got lost all the time. But she'd been to Betsy's house so many times, including the week before. It was weird. If you don't know how to get to her house, then you sure as hell shouldn't be her beneficiary. Like, right. I, I don't understand. <laughs> right. I don't understand. Pam had driven out of her way to get Betsy home so that pet so that Betsy could get some much needed sleep. But then oh, she's sweet. bothering her by calling her when she's just a few miles away. Well, and telling her family, I'm worried about her mental state. Oh, that's so convenient mm-hmm. since now this murder looks potentially like a suicide. Mm-hmm. So Schwartz asked Russ about Pam. And Russ didn't have anything bad to say about her. He liked Pam. She was easy to talk to. But he said she kind of came out of the woodwork when Betsy was diagnosed with cancer. But he said Mm. she wasn't the only one. There were several people that wanted to spend more time with Betsy after her diagnosis. But Russ said there were plenty of other people that Betsy was closer with than Pam. Mm -hmm. And then there was the whole beneficiary form thing. Yeah. 
Pam didn't tell the police that she and Betsy had gone to the post office as soon as it had been signed to mail it off. State Farm had contacted the detectives, who assured the insurance company that Pam was not a suspect, so they shouldn't have any concerns about paying out her life insurance, which was $150,000. Was that life insurance through State Farm? Yes. Mm. Pam told police that in her world, $150,000, chump change. I was about to say, you're living in Missouri. I mean, come on. Yeah, she said that's not that much. She said she didn't know where a large deposit to her account came from. And they asked her, where else would you receive $134,000? And Pam was all pissed off. And she was like, I could have received it from anywhere, from my brother, from my mother. What do you think? I'm poor. I don't know people. I don't know what you're insinuating. And they didn't didn't (laughs) find that incredibly suspicious. Not embracing your wife's body, but yeah, I was gonna. <laughs> yeah, that's subtle. suspicious as hell. But this, no. What do you think? I'm poor. I know people. <laughs> I mean, I've gotten paid on the same day ever since I've had a steady job, and I still check every time to make uh-huh. sure. <laughs> uh huh. Like, yeah, oh, I'd no. notice one hundred thirty-four thousand dollars. Yeah, my mom could have given it to me. My brother could have given it to me. I'll never have to worry about that. <laughs> just saying after pam received betsy's life insurance she bought a new house and registered a new company h2 partners building solutions giving the address of her new house as the business address if pam had actually been the one to kill betsy She'd taken a risk killing her when she did because State Farm hadn't actually received the change in beneficiary form until the day after Betsy died. And someone at the agency could have decided not to honor the change. Yeah. So Pam told police, well, if I'd set this whole thing up, why wouldn't I have waited until Friday to make sure they got it? So you could say that right there. Who was the original beneficiaries? The two daughters? I think it was Russ. Russ, but he was, yeah. Okay. But Schwartz knew the answer to that question because Pam wanted to frame Russ and she knew where he was every Tuesday. Mm. He mm. was always at his game night. But wouldn't that make it even worse? Because that's his alibi also. Like people were there. How did this all ju- work out for her? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Like I would have done like when he's at work. Or something. I mean, that's no better, I guess. But like, I think he works from home. Yeah, I don't know. So Schwartz started to comb through the videotapes of her interviews and his frustration grew. Pam's demeanor could only be described as easy breezy. Her voice was warm when she talked about Betsy and how much she loved her. She asked the detective if it was normal that Betsy's family had turned against her over the money, saying it's not like she put a gun to her head to make her fill out the form. Allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly. The officer reassured her that it was perfectly normal. No mention of the abnormality of putting a friend down as the beneficiary when you're dying of cancer and you have two kids and a husband and parents. Right, and this sounds like this is going to sound kind of morbid, but I mean, whatever. We do a true crime podcast, but sure. If you knew she had cancer and it's terminal, why wouldn't you just change the beneficiary and then just let her die of cancer, and then you'd still get the money? Like, why was the murder necessary? 
Why? You needed it right now? I mean, she's going to die. The only thing I can think of besides just a greedy sociopath is Mm -hmm. that maybe she was worried that Betsy would realize that that was the dumbest thing in the whole world and she didn't want to give her enough time to change her mind about the form. Which makes sense, except that Pam works at State Farm anyway, so I feel like she could... Not for 10 years. She worked there a long time ago. She didn't work there anymore. She was on disability. She didn't work at all. That's right. So she didn't even work there when the whole change and everything happened. No. uh Uh-uh. Oh, I was kind of thinking... No, but she knows insurance. She'd worked in insurance for Mm -hmm. many different insurance companies. Like, she knew the rules. She knew... The ins and outs, like, she knew what to do. She knew exactly what to fill out. She knew when to get it in. You know, I mean, she knew everything. She knows how it works. Schwartz saw them just eating out of the palm of her hand, believing every little thing she said, no matter how ridiculous. (laughs) Pam had agreed to take a polygraph, and Schwartz was really eager to dive into that information. Only Pam never actually took it. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. 
First, she'd hired a lawyer that had pushed it back. And then she talked about all these head injuries she'd had over the years. And so she needed to get cleared by a doctor to take the polygraph. So she sent a letter to the doctor asking for clearance. And here's how that letter went, Mogab. Oh, good. Dear Dr. Fisher, could you please write Detective Kaiser a letter stating that I was not able to do a polygraph due to medical reasons? Don't need to be more detailed than that. That's it. That's it. So her doctor obliged, regardless of the facts that he later said there was nothing about her medical condition that would prevent her from taking the polygraph or keep her from telling the truth. Then you shouldn't have written the letter, Dr. Fisher. Dr. Fisher. Is he still practicing? (laughs) (laughs) Answer for your crimes. In Pam's deposition, she denied writing the letter, but Schwartz had the handwritten note. Her doctor had faxed that to police along with his letter. (laughs) (laughs) Exhibit A and B. (laughs) Yeah. Schwartz asked her what her disability was, and she said she has drop foot and balance problems. She tripped at work and hit her head on a filing cabinet. Her workers' comp case was supposedly still pending. And then Mm. Pam said if she was going to kill someone for the life insurance, she'd kill her husband instead of Betsy because his policy was much higher. Wait, she she said said that? Yeah. And then she said, amazingly, (gasps) he's still alive. So her defense for not (laughs) killing somebody was that she could have killed somebody else and gotten more money. Literally her own husband. I mean, I wonder if they're still together after that comment. Also, it's not a sobriety test. So your balance, I mean, sit your ass down and take the thing. Right. She said she was no longer willing to take a polygraph. I'm no longer willing to listen to this (laughs) nonsense. Then Detective McCarrick was deposed and Schwartz asked him whether he believed Pam Hupp. The detective basically said, yes, nothing she said or did led me to believe that she was ever lying to me. Not even when her story changed 14 times. I just believed the last version she said, because that's obviously the true version. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, but... Okay, I was thinking... (laughs) Basically his testimony. Okay, good. (laughs) Schwartz asked him if he was aware that Pam had been fired from two life insurance jobs for forging signatures. (gasps) And he said no. Okay, why didn't you tell me that earlier than just right now? Because honestly... I forgot about that little detail. You keep doing. (laughs) Okay, well, that seems like a major piece of information. It really does. He asked if he'd seen evidence of a brain injury, and he said no, but he hadn't gone through her medical records. And Schwartz asked if he'd asked for the medical records, and he said no. All right, look, I know I said I didn't want Britney Spears' medical records, but I feel Mm. like Pam owes me. Like, Mm. I need hers. I need hers. Yes, agreed. We can get hers. So Pam's murder trial began. I'm sorry. Ha, not Pam's. Russ's murder trial began on November 18th, 2013. What? At this point, Russ had been in county jail for two years. (gasps) Wait, no way. Yep. Lincoln County. I know. Lincoln County, where Betsy was murdered and where this trial took place, was not used to violent crimes. The judge presiding over the trial had never presided over a murder trial before. And the prosecuting attorney, Leah Askey, had never tried a murder before. This was new territory for everyone. Because they didn't try Lori Drew. That's why. (laughs) 
Yeah, had you tried Lori Drew, maybe this could have been your second. Askey told the jury that Russ had been motivated by greed. She painted Russ as a man who cussed, smoked pot, had a temper, was bossy, which went down in history as the first time a man was ever described as bossy. <laughs> just about to say, welcome to every man in America. <laughs> she said he had student loan debt because he's also the only one in America with student loans. And he still believed that he was the beneficiary of her policy. Betsy's daughters, Leah and Mariah Day, were Russ's stepdaughters, and they were convinced that Russ was guilty. Aww. Leah testified that it wasn't exactly the Brady Bunch at their house. Askey said Russ had to have been the one to kill Betsy because whoever did it had cleaned up and let the dog out afterwards. And mm -hmm. Russ was the only one who knew where their towels were and the only one who could have controlled their dog, which was a chowder dog. It was a chow mix. <gasps> Oh, yeah. Ch well, chows are territorial <laughs> and mean. Yes, that's true. But also, I'm sure the towels were in the linen closet or <laughs> under the Right. Sink Nobody could find the, the towels. Nobody else but the owner could find the towels. Everybody keeps their towels in different <laughs> random places. Yeah. Mine are mm -hmm. under the sink. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. They're in a linen closet like everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for letting me know. So now I'm a suspect. <laughs> if anything ever happens to you. Yes. Now you know where the towels are. are. She said, as, uh, Leah Askey said there was a smudge that looked like a bloody paw print on Betsy's body. So oh. that showed that the dog had been inside the house and somebody must have left the dog out. But Chowder. crime scene investigators later testified that there was no sign of blood in that splotch. And they couldn't even be certain it was a paw print. There was basically no sign that blood had been cleaned from the floor there was no blood found in the drain pipes either. No bloody footprints in the home either, especially none matching those tan slippers. Wait, I never thought about if you rinse off and shower that then they would check the drain pipes. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Can't Probably not these it. cops. They're not even like, I don't know. Well, they what did. They, they did about. check the drain pipes. There was no blood. So they're... Checking drain pipes, uh -huh. but they're not looking at the Arby's receipt. I mean, this is my oh issue no, there. she has an explanation for the Arby's receipt. It's really good. Don't worry, it's a really good explanation. Okay, Don't worry. Great. Leah, Betsy's daughter, had called Betsy at seven twenty one, seven twenty six, and seven thirty to get Betsy to authorize her cell phone plan upgrade. This was something they'd discussed before. Betsy had agreed to it, so Schwartz figured that Betsy must have been killed before seven twenty one. Otherwise, she would have answered the phone. She'd had those plans to talk to Leah. This would also be in line with the rigidity of Betsy's body when she was found. So somewhere between seven oh six and seven twenty one. She was killed or being killed. But Askey, the prosecutor, she didn't seem she didn't seem real concerned about actual science. Mm -hmm. She asked the doctor who had performed the autopsy about a thing called cadaveric spasm, which causes oh. rigor almost immediately if there was extreme physical exertion right before death. And the doctor said that it was possible, but cadaveric spasm is rare and it's not even universally accepted in the science community. Hmm. Askey okay. also decided that science was for suckers when she made the point that <laughs> Betsy <laughs> had eight sperm cells in her. So Russ must have had sex with her right before he stabbed her 55 times because anyone 
with a ninth grade education in biology should know that eight sperm cells doesn't mean a whole lot. There may be hundreds of sperm cells right after sex, and they can stick around for three days. Okay, I know I didn't know any of that, so I feel like I, I mean, you know, I got my health class in Texas, so we just do abstinence. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't tell us there was a million sperms and they'll all kill you. That too. The, do you know the scene in Mean Girls? You will get chlamydia like, and die. And die? That was my <laughs> sex ed in high school. It's not like that's not even a joke. Yeah. Like that's yeah. what we were taught. You will get you will get gonorrhea of the eye and yeah. die. You will get one sperm in you and die if yeah. you're 16. Right. Yep. Anyways. Russ said the last time they'd had sex was two days before. So that fit with the nine, eight sperm cells left in her. Russ's 911 call was also dissected at the trial. Russ went in and out of hysteria, which was seen to most of them as suspicious. They expected his emotional state to be consistent. But a forensic psychiatrist said that this is a common mistake and that a person might go in and out of shock and distress because people are able to compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you're you able to kind of shut it off and, and think, okay, uh, this is my address. This is this, you know. Mm-hmm. The police never used Russ's cell phone to map his location the night of the murder, but Schwartz did. He brought in experts to testify that Russ's phone was at least 10 miles from his home at 925, and he didn't reach home until 937, three minutes before he called 911. That's my issue is like, why aren't the police looking at that? But they're like, we'll look in the drain pipes for blood. Like, well, that's the, the crime scene right technicians, here. not the detectives. Huh? Those are the crime scene technicians actually doing their job. The detectives are just like, I don't know, wanting to sleep with Pam Hupp? I have no idea. <laughs> Probably. Sh- Schwartz was not allowed to bring up Pam Hupp's phone or her motive as the sole beneficiary because the prosecutor had argued that Pam had no direct connection to the case, even though she was the last person to see Betsy alive and the beneficiary of her yeah. life insurance. I can't think of a more direct... <laughs> Yeah, but they like, wouldn't. Sure, the husband, number one, and then the beneficiary and the person she was with that day is number two. Right, but he couldn't bring any of that up at trial. The judge said, no, you can't bring this stuff up about Pam at all. Mm-mm. And I'm like, if I'm listening to this story and I don't have all the Pam Hupp stuff, even with his his alibi, I would think he did it because who else would have? Yeah, I mean, do they even know that there's... No. Did the jury even know... They couldn't even know that he wasn't the beneficiary or any – I mean – They might be able to say that. But then you don't know. I guess – but then you still don't know that their relationship – then I would just think it was like a really good friend, you know? Right. Ugh. I'm on, on Pam's cross-examination at the trial, Schwartz tried to go after her for the inconsistencies in her story – But the prosecutor objected on the grounds that he was impeaching the witness, which is what cross-examination is for. Uh, So I don't understand how that objection was sustained at all. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the whole point? Like, literally the whole point. You're not on the same team. What the hell? 
Throughout the whole trial, Pam was completely protected. After Schwartz asked Pam about her inconsistent statements, a prosecutor assisting Askey said, I'm trying to figure out what the relevance there is going after this other than to try to point his finger at her. Schwartz did want to put the finger at Pam, and he couldn't figure out why she had never been a suspect in the first place. If this ends with Russell being in jail. (laughs) So Schwartz threw a Hail Mary, and he asked for permission to question Pam for the record, but without the jury hearing them about the life insurance money, which is also a weird thing I've never heard of happening at a trial. Yeah, what, did the jury leave the room? Yeah. so like they exited. Okay. Yes. So she had finally put $100,000 in a trust for Betsy's daughters. And she said with the remaining 50000 she was trying to help the 12-year-old daughter of another girlfriend of hers that had died in August, which was a total lie. She never did help that 12-year-old. And she admitted later that she would lie to anyone who bugged her about the payout. <laughs> The only reporter covering this whole trial was absolutely shocked that the most intriguing and important testimony was given when there were no jury members around to hear it. And I don't understand this offer of proof thing at all. I don't understand what the the point is of questioning somebody on the record with no if there's no jury to hear it, I guess, for appeals. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, to have. Yeah. So Schwartz also asked Pam why it took her so long to set up the trust for Betsy's daughters. And Pam said that her mother had just died of Alzheimer's. So she was taking care of that. She didn't have time to set up this trust. It had been two years, you know, since the murder, since the payout. (laughs) Yeah. But she'd just been dealing with the death of her mother for the last 24 months. So busy. Hmm. During ASCII's closing statements, She presented her theory of the crime. And get ready, because this is really good. This is like a really good theory. I'm ready. She said that Russ had decided this would be the ultimate role play. That he'd planned it for... (laughs) That he'd planned it for... (laughs) For months, maybe even years. And that he'd even brought the idea to his friends. But he hadn't decided that night would be the night until Betsy texted him to say Pam was driving her home. (sighs) Askey said that Russ made all those stops, not because he needed gas and cigarettes and dog food, but because he wanted to establish his alibi. He went to his game night, and he left his phone with his friends, and then he headed home to find Betsy on the couch covered with a blanket, and then he had sex with her. Oh, so he could control her one last time. And then he killed her while he was naked. That's why there's no blood on his clothes. Ew. And then he showered off the evidence, even though there's no blood in the drains. And right. he saw the dog sniffing around. So he got her outside on a chain while he cleaned up the blood, leaving no evidence of blood being cleaned. The and dog out on a chain? Yeah, he Not put best. the dog out. Okay. Yeah. okay. Sorry. While on the phone with 911, he realized he'd gotten blood on his slippers. So he threw them in the closet while he was on the phone. And meanwhile, a friend of his dropped off his phone and the Arby's receipt. Ta-da. The perfect crime. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. First of all, 
Man's not walking around naked with slippers on letting the dog out. <laughs> I And all of that in nine minutes, too. I also hate the word role playing. <laughs> Do we know what this game Lord. was? I'm just very curious. It's like what? a Dungeons and Dragons. It's similar, but it's not Dungeons and Dragons. I didn't write it uh, down. I can't. Rem- I don't. I don't know anything about those games, no. but I do know that they don't make you a murderer, <laughs> right? Or like they're not usually weird sex things. No, they're not at you all. You know what I mean? They're like nerdy. That doesn't check out at all. No. <laughs> and Schwartz was completely dumbfounded. He figured that ASCII was the type that had just gotten backed into a corner, but he didn't think she was this malicious. But after this closing statement. Schwartz stood up and pointed out to the jury that she had just accused four people of murder without one shred of evidence. She had no evidence those people are involved. And she just got up there at closing and is like, they're all, they're all, they all did it. It took five people. It wasn't just one Pam Hupp. It was five people. Mm -hmm. Five people that have maybe even never met her or cared and don't get any payout. And There's let's no talk monetary about, value for right. them. There's no motive there. And let's talk about this very complicated ordeal of like him leaving the phone and the Arby's receipt and all the stops when Pam was just the last one to see her alive, had no alibi for that whole time. And can't seem to remember what car was there, if she went in, like how far she went consistent in. Consistent story. Like which one and makes I, more sense? <sighs> and I stand by what I said about Snapple and Curly Fries. So, all right. He said ASCII must know nothing about these role-playing games Russ was involved in if she thought that was something that would lead to murder. Mm -hmm. Russ's character in these games was a monk who didn't even use weapons. And one of the (laughs) friends hadn't even shown up that night. Why would they carry out this plan that night when they were down a person? And was ASCII really saying that Russ had gotten naked, had sex with Bessie, stabbed her 55 times, and then put all of Betsy's clothes back on her dead body. Oh, yeah. I know. I didn't think of that either. (laughs) Schwartz took them through all the forensics, how this couldn't have been committed in a state of rage, like Askey said, because the stab wounds were all methodical and neatly aligned. It wasn't just like rage stabbing. Yeah. He pointed out to the jury how the timing didn't fit and how ludicrous it would be to get a friend to bring him the receipt. But the jury didn't see it that way. One juror even wrote in his notes, they're trying to pin this on Pam Hupp. Yeah, dumbass. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. They came back with a guilty verdict in four and a half hours. On November 21st, 2013, Russ was sentenced to life in prison without (gasps) parole. Oh, my God. Yep. You bitch. Why would you? (laughs) Why? Why would you do that to me? Are you kidding? (laughs) I know. The jury said they just thought Russ's alibi was too good and that his friend's stories were too similar. Considering they're a group of friends (sighs) who meet the same night every week to play the same game or watch movies, how different could their stories have been? But they said they sounded rehearsed. They were too similar. And then. Oh, my God. And then. Mogab, are you ready? 
No, I'm so mad. I'm not ready unless this man is not in prison. The day after the trial ended, Schwartz started getting flooded with emails, all telling him the same thing. (gasps) When Pam had said her mother had died of Alzheimer's, she had been lying. Her mother was dead all right, but it wasn't Alzheimer's that killed her. Was she murdered? (sighs) Pam's mother, Shirley Newman, had started showing signs of dementia, but it was the fall from her third-story balcony (gasps) that had killed her. It seemed the metal balusters had broken. Two of them were laying next to her body when she was found, but the guardrail on top was still sturdy. She had eight times the typical dose of Ambien in her system when she died or when she fell. Shirley lived in an assisted living community, and she'd spent the night with Pam two nights before she died. Pam dropped her off the next evening around 5 p.m., and she told the staff there that Shirley probably wouldn't be eating dinner that night or breakfast the next morning, but that she'd probably be there for lunch. Though her brother later said this is all untrue, that Pam had told the staff to call the family if her mother didn't come to breakfast. Mm-hmm. The next day after lunch, a housekeeper found Shirley's apartment door cracked open. Water was running in the bathroom and the patio door was open. The housekeeper peeked over the broken railing or the broken balcony railing and saw Shirley's body on the ground below, dressed in her night clothes. Wait, uh, why would it take that long for someone to realize there's a body on the Yeah, they didn't realize till the next day. Shirley's death was explained away as an accident. No, no, it is not. It wasn't just explained that way to me. (laughs) She'd been, she'd become more and more confused lately, and maybe she'd forgotten she'd taken the Ambien. Maybe she forgot seven times. Maybe she was out of sorts from the Ambien and had tripped and fallen through the railing. But eight doses. Yeah, eight times the legal, yeah. Not the legal limit. I was going to say eight times the legal yeah. limit. I mean, eight times the, the dose. Yeah. yeah. But Schwartz didn't think so. Pam, he didn't think that she had just tripped and forgotten to take these doses. Pam's words kept coming back to him. A remark said almost in passing in her easy breezy way. She would have killed someone else. Yeah. She said, I hate to say it. If I really wanted money, my mom's worth half a million that I get when she dies. If I really wanted money. There was an easier way. So she's just all over here saying she would kill everybody. Everybody I mean, she but did. Betsy. <laughs> Turns out. Okay. One source that I read said that the half a million she was talking about was actually 3500 just enough to cover funeral expenses. But then another source that I found said that it actually was like a, quite a substantial amount of money. So I'm not really sure like what she actually got. After her mother's death, Pam did an interview with the local news station, and she told the reporter that the people in the home said her mother had completed suicide, but that she didn't really know what was going on. And then Mark Hupp pulled up about 30 minutes into the interview, and Pam said, oh, he won't be happy I'm talking to you. Oh. So police investigated the death, and they didn't find anything suspicious. I'm sorry, the Ambien? That wasn't suspicious? No, uh-uh, no. Uh, <laughs> Betsy's daughters filed a lawsuit against Pam for the money from their mother's life insurance. Because mm-hmm. turns out that trust that Pam set up, that was a revocable trust. 
So Pam just revoked it. It was basically emptied a couple of weeks after Russ's trial ended, and she'd only set it up in the first place because the detective in charge of Russ's case told her she should do it for the sake of appearances for the trial. This all came out in that civil lawsuit against Pam, and it all got back to Schwartz, who immediately began filing what's called a Mooney motion, which basically says that there's new evidence that might negate that guilty verdict. Yes, yes. Only three Mooney motions had ever been granted in Missouri's history, and this one would make it four. (laughs) Yes. In February 2015, 15 months after Russell's conviction, it was decided that Russ would get a new trial. There was just an endless amount of reasons why Russ didn't get a fair trial, including flat-out lies from the police. Yes, amongst others. (laughs) Yeah. At his first trial, the officers described the blood analysis where they'd sprayed luminol and said that they made the house dark and took pictures and that it just lit up like a Christmas tree. So there was blood everywhere, tons of evidence that blood Mm -hmm. had been cleaned up. But unfortunately, none of the pictures had developed. So jury members, you'll just have to take my word for it, for what I saw. We don't have any Mm. pictures to prove it. Well, No evidence. No evidence. Well, Schwartz got a copy of 132 crime scene photographs he'd never seen before, and they didn't show anything that the officers had described. It's like they were describing what they'd wanted to see, not what was actually there. Then Schwartz found out that the captain of investigations, Mike Lang, was 100% head over heels in gaga epic love with Leah Askey the prosecutor, and that he'd sent her an email telling her he'd be everything she needed for this case. Schwartz suddenly had an explanation for why Lang never bothered to get the data to map Russ's cell phone the night of her murder, something that could Mm -hmm. have proven him innocent by showing that he was at his friend's house until well past Betsy's time of death. Then Schwartz got a videotape of another interview with Pam Hupp that she gave the June after Russ was released when they decided he'd get the new trial. This time, Pam's story changed again. Now she was saying, oh, my God, I forgot about this part. I literally it's been like a week since I wrote this. I forgot she did this. Oh, no. Now she's saying that she and Betsy had been lovers. They weren't lesbians, though. Mogab, she said. It's just that Betsy had experienced so much trauma that she was needing to replace her husband with Pam. What was what? They're not lesbians. They're just two women lovers. Oh, my God. And the detective praised Pam, saying, You guys just had that life and death, full circle friendship, and you were just there for Betsy in every aspect. (laughs) That's not a thing. Listen, I didn't make out with you in college. If you get cancer, I'm still not making out with you, okay? (laughs) A longtime acquaintance said that Pam was the most homophobic person she'd ever met. Well, that's upsetting, but. 
Yeah, because Pam's been great up until that. I really <laughs> I was know. rooting for her. <laughs> Wait, oh, Pam. I thought you said, okay. Yeah. No, Pam. That that also tracks, yeah. Pam. Not Betsy. Betsy's sweet and wonderful, and I bet she loved the gays. Mm-hmm. So why would Pam lie? Well. Are we, are we kidding? About this. <laughs> 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 why would she make up this lie? To help explain why Betsy was leaving all her money to Pam. It just right. makes it easier to believe that she would give her secret lover all her money instead of this, like, friend. Rando. And also it gives Russ even more motive to kill Betsy. Because Pam's description of Russ has also devolved since her first interview. Oh, He's jealous. The, her first interview, she said, he seemed nice enough, but I didn't know him that well. But no, now she's saying that a month before Betsy's death, Russ came home and caught them in the act. And he said, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what they were doing, though, because they're not lesbians. They're okay. just lovers. He slammed Pam up against the wall, grabbed her throat and threatened her, saying if he ever caught them going at it again, He'd kill him. In this interview, Pam told police that Betsy was going to tell Russ that she was leaving him. But a close friend of the family said that wasn't true. She just wanted Russ to move to her parents' house with her. And it's like the police officers took everything Pam told them as sacred truth, even when other people were contradicting what she was saying. They never even attempted to verify anything she said. Right. Then, in October, one month before his second trial, Pam had another fascinating thing to tell detectives. (laughs) Okay, I'm done capital D-O-N-E with Mm. her. She had a recovered memory. Oh, Russ had been at the crime scene. She just now remembered. He lives there. But he'd been there that night. At the crime scene. And she, she saw, him. saw him. She, she happened to see him. Oh. Yes. See, she Pam doesn't these, even know what car's there. Yeah. Pam has all these head injuries, plus the Ambien. It, it makes it so she can't remember anything. The same Ambien that her mom was taking? Mm-hmm. But she has the best kind of memory loss. It's the kind that really works out for her how she wants it to work. <laughs> you know, Her memories are really good when she wants them to be good, and they're really bad when it works for her for them to be bad. I mean, I know a lot of people like that, for being honest. I mean. (laughs) And then remember that email, that document that Pam kept telling the police they needed to find? That it had been in an email sent to Pam from Betsy, and it detailed how Russ used to put a pillow over her head? Yeah, but she had never sent the email. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, they found the document on her computer. On, On Pam's computer? On Betsy's computer. Oh, but they also found some very interesting things in the microdata of the document. For example, it was the only document on Betsy's computer that listed the author as unknown. And it was associated with software that Betsy didn't even have on that laptop. Oh, so it was like sent to her. Or like a USB or something. Yeah. Okay. Pam at first had referred to it as an email and then a document. And so this might explain that. 
The Microsoft Outlook application had been opened at the same time the document had been written, but Betsy didn't use Outlook, so the document couldn't be emailed like she planned to email it, it seems. And when she couldn't, she figured police would just find the document on the computer. And she certainly tried to point them in that direction. Askey, the prosecutor, she thought finding this document meant a slam dunk in her case against Russ. But Schwartz thought it could mean just the opposite. So on November 2nd, 2015, Russ's second trial started and Schwartz was ready. This was going to be a bench trial, which means no jury. It would just be a single judge who would decide Russ's guilt or innocence. A police corporal that cleared the crime scene testified that he'd recently, as in three and a half years after the murder, he remembered seeing water droplets in the shower, (sighs) which obviously meant there'd been a a cleanup. You know, how do you remember that? I I have a hard time remembering if I showered. He didn't. He made it up. You know what I mean? (laughs) I know. But I'm like, did I shower last? Yeah. Three and a half years later, he suddenly is like, oh, yeah, there were water droplets. I forgot. (laughs) Askey tried again to keep out any evidence against Pam Hupp, but this time the judge wanted to hear it because it's not a jury. It's the judge. Right. And so with everything new that Schwartz had uncovered, plus allowing the Pam Hupp evidence, it was like a completely different trial. McCarrick, the lead detective, testified, and Schwartz walked him through all the discrepancies in Pam's statement. But McCarrick doubled down, still insisting that Russ was the only logical suspect. At the first trial, Askey had said that Russ's slippers looked like they'd stepped in blood. But at the second trial, a crime scene investigator said that wasn't true. It actually looked like they'd been dipped in blood. Oh, she also said there was no sign of a cleanup. In fact, the floor was still dirty. Like, how do you clean up blood, but you leave the dirt behind? They read the document in court, this document that Pam had said that Betsy was going to try to send to her. They read it in court, and it was not the sort of thing that Betsy would have typed in a document, according to all her close friends. She would have called her friends for help, not typed it in Word. And this and is what saved it, it. Yeah. And this is what it said. I know we talked about this yesterday, but I feel I really need you to believe me. I really do feel that Russ is going to do something to me. He continued to tell me how much money he would make after I die. Last night was the worst. I fell asleep on the couch while watching TV. I woke up to Russ holding a pillow over my face. He said that he wanted me to know what dying feels like. I need to change my life insurance. Do you think I could put it in your name and you could help my daughters when they need it? If something happens to me, would you please show this to the police? Oh, my God. I feel like I could be the best detective when I hear about this stuff happening. And I'm like, how could anyone be fooled? I'm like, I would be an amazing investigator. Mm-hmm. The, like, you can't read that and tell me you think that's legit. You're scared of the dark, though, Mogab. So. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> sometimes you got to work think- in the nighttime. <laughs> God. As Pamela. This- Pamela. As the second trial wore on, Pam started getting anxious. She was waiting to get called to the stand, but no one was calling her. And so she ended up just going home. She wasn't there when the judge came out and said he'd reached a decision. He said the Lincoln County investigation was rather disturbing. 
and Russ Faria was acquitted of the murder of his wife. But ASCII was convinced that Russ had murdered her, and she wasn't planning on charging anyone else for the murder. She considered the case closed. What? Go home. Yeah. So that's it? Yeah. No. Oh. We, oh. Girl, okay, good. we're not done. Ugh. We are not done. But Schwartz couldn't let it go. He knew Pam Hupp had committed this murder, and he couldn't stand the thought of her getting away with it. Yeah, he didn't same. think, yeah, he didn't think Pam was finished. And he truly believed that if she wasn't caught, someone else would be killed. So he called the U.S. Attorney's Office for their district in Missouri and asked him to review the case. But before the case could be reviewed, Schwartz's prediction came true. She Some- killed the attorney. No, but someone else was dead. On August 16th, 2016, 33-year-old Louis Gumpenberger was shot and killed by Pam Hupp. She told police that it was self-defense, that he'd come at her screaming for Russ's money and said that he'd kill her. She ran into the bathroom where she just happened to have a gun and she grabbed it and then shot him as many times as she could. But of course, her story made no sense. Lewis had actually been in a car accident in 2005 that had resulted in extensive brain damage, leaving him with the mind of a child. He had a very strong limp. He couldn't use his left hand. And he pretty much stayed inside his mother's house, except for some short walks he'd take around the neighborhood. This time, the police didn't act like they were completely incompetent with raging tunnel vision. It didn't take long for them to put together exactly what had happened. Because you see, Dateline was covering Betsy's case. And yes. they, were, they were giving it more time than they'd given any other case except OJ and Jean Benet. Oh, my gosh. How have I not heard of this? <laughs> I, I know, same. Yeah, and I couldn't find any of the Dateline episodes either, so I couldn't watch any of them. But they do have a podcast. And apparently, this was stressing Pam Hupp out. She needed to make sure that Dateline had plenty of reasons to single Russ out as the murderer and get suspicion off of her. So she killed someone else? Yes, that was her plan. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Six I'm days. Not following. Mm, six days before Pam shot Lewis, a woman had called 911 with a very odd story. This woman is not Pam. She said that a blonde woman had approached her and said that she was a producer for Dateline and she wanted to pay her $1,000 to reenact a 911 call for the show. The woman, she said that she kind of was wary, like she thought it was weird, but she kind of wanted to see where it went. So she accepted the offer, but things seemed weird. The woman didn't have a business card. And she was not surrounded by a camera crew. And $1,000 seemed like a lot of money for a simple reenactment. Is that really how this worked? She quickly changed her yes to a no, and the blonde woman drove her home. Like, what? wait, where did she just, like, approach her? Where? Yeah, she was at her house, which this is a trailer park that they live in, that she's driving around asking these people that live in this trailer park if they want to make $1,000 to reenact a 911 call for Dateline because she's a producer for Dateline. Police checked security footage and clearly saw that it was Pam Hupp's SUV because actually this woman did this really smart thing where Pam had pulled up and 
she had had Pam pull up farther into her drive so mm-hmm. that it would get caught on her security camera. Like, she was smart. Smart, yeah. So they saw that it was her SUV. They also found $900 in plastic bags stuffed in Lewis's pockets. And the serial numbers lined up with a $100 bill that Pam had in her possession. And somebody that knows stuff about that said that that was basically impossible. <laughs> like the odds of that happening would be insane. Somebody yeah. knows something I about don't. That. It's not in my script and I don't remember what his title was. But <laughs> no, that some was so money that was guy. <laughs> Also in Lewis's pocket was a handwritten note that told him to kill Pam Hupp for $10,000. But before he killed her, he needed to get her to the bank and then get Russ's money and leave it in the wood pile at Russ's house. Oh. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. police went to ask Russ about it and he had no idea what wood pile the note referred to until he remembered his dad had done some yard work for him and there had been a pile of timber in the yard. And so he figured this bitch has been driving back and forth (laughs) in front of my house. So his sister offered to go through the neighbor's security camera and see if they saw Pam Hub drive by while that woodpile was on his front lawn. The neighbor came by a couple of days later to say he'd gotten her on tape driving past his house and then coming back the other way. Leave Leave this man alone. Like, y'all exactly. should be done. Exactly. He, I, I guarantee you, Russ was like, no way is this bitch going to do this to me again. No yeah. way. Right. So the St. Charles County prosecutor and the O'Fallon chief of police announced their theory of the case on August 23rd, 2016. They said they believed Hupp had lured Lewis to her house by saying she was a producer for Dateline and wanted him to do some 911 reenactment. She might not have even had to be that clever to get Lewis to come to her house with the brain damage that he had. Mm -hmm. And then she'd shot him in cold blood all to stage this whole thing to try and make it look like Russ had paid him to attack her. Can't keep murdering more people to divert attention from the person you murdered. Right. Pam was arrested finally, but an hour after she was arrested, she was in the interview room and she's left alone. And the only thing in the interview room is this table and this ballpoint pen. And she grabs the ballpoint pen off the table, slips it up her sleeve, and then asks to go to the bathroom. And so they had a female officer escort her to the bathroom. And once she was in there, she took that pen and she drove it into her neck and her <gasps> wrists. Oh. Yeah. The officer was able to get her help before she could seriously hurt herself. But her mugshot is just her all bandaged up. In the end, Pam would end up accepting an Alford plea, which allows you to maintain your innocence while pleading guilty. sorry, what? You're basically saying, no, I'm innocent, but I'm also acknowledging that I see you have enough evidence to convict me of this crime. But Pam never gave the people what they wanted. She never admitted to anything, and she was Mm -hmm. only ever charged with the murder of Louis Gumpenberger. But... The result was the same. She was sentenced to life in prison without parole. No, she needs to be sentenced for all the other murders. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. 
Prosecutor Leah Askey and the judge that presided over Russ's first trial have both been voted out of office. The guy that took Askey's place basically ran on a campaign of look what she did to Russ Faria. (laughs) (laughs) Betsy Faria's murder case has been reopened and police are looking into it again. But the most we can hope for at this point is a confession from Pam Hupp. It could be a death penalty case, Betsy Faria's. And the prosecutor is hoping that they can use the death penalty in order to get a confession out of Pam, but I don't think that'll work. Pam Hupp is such a narcissist. I honestly think she'd prefer to be found guilty and sentenced to death than to ever own up to anything she's done. What's the point of that case being reopened if they believe that it was Pam and she's already behind bar? I mean, I understand. To get justice for Betsy, I mean, that's sure. really why. Yeah. yeah, but I guess it's like they know, so... Yeah. Just seems like a. Weird it wouldn't make reason. a difference in her punishment, but yeah, it would bring some closure and justice for Betsy. Oh come on, just slap her name on it. You know she did it, right? I know exactly. <laughs> just write it. Just have her forge it, like she's been doing. Yes. Russ Faria sued Lincoln County, saying they fabricated evidence, ignored exonerating evidence, and failed mm-hmm. to investigate the other obvious suspect. And his lawsuit was later settled for $2 million. So thank God for that. Yeah. And could be a little bit more, but I agree. And I think he would have had a case here other than the wrongful conviction. But there are too many states that don't pay anything for a wrongful conviction for an exoneration. Well, honestly, Russ, do you even want money? Because I mean, maybe now that homegirl's behind bars, but I would have been definitely keeping that quiet. I would have gotten $2 million and Pam still running around. No kidding. It was announced a few weeks ago that Renee Zellweger will play Pam Hupp in an upcoming miniseries based on the Dateline coverage of the case called The Thing About Pam. And I kind of hate that Pam is still alive to know she's being played by Renee Zellweger, but I also really want to watch it. I also hate that that's what it's called. How about The Thing About Betsy? What was her name? Betsy. Why did yeah, Betsy yeah it's, like, it's just blank on her name. And that was what the Dateline podcast was called, too. It was called The Thing About Pam. That's why I didn't want to tell oh. you ah. at the beginning. And that is the story of the murder of Betsy Faria and Louis Gumpenberger. Poor guy. <laughs> and Bam's mom, Shirley Newman. Was that not a wild I, ride? I think I'm trying to process how she killed three very different people in her life. Like, kind mm-hmm. of a stranger. but Basically a stranger her own mother, and someone in between that. And her, yeah, like her friend. F- acquaintance slash friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, a friend, not a best friend, but yeah. Mm-hmm. A, a stranger, a friend, and your own mother. I think probably the closest friend she was capable of having, you know. Yeah. Are we under the assumption that Bets? I don't think Betsy changed it. It was all forged, right? I don't know, because they went to, one, one thing I left out, they... They went to a library. This is also why I don't understand. You would think you would have to get that notarized. And they just went to the library and had a witness watch them both sign it. And not somebody that was notarized. And so that was weird to me that that was acceptable for those signatures. I don't know anything about this witness. And if she's ever come out and said, yes, I actually did witness these signatures or no, I lied and I have a new theory. I just okay. thought of it. All right. Uh Betsy was on Ambien. She drugged her. 
Got her all loosey-goosey. Maybe. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out how she convinced her to change the beneficiaries. I don't know. That's wild to me, too. Rifling. I mean, I just can't see any way that if Betsy was worried about her kids spending the money or her husband spending the money, that she wouldn't have gone and made a will and put the money right. into a trust that they didn't right. have access to until they were 25 or 30 or whatever, mm-hmm. so that they wouldn't be spending it at 16. I'm not sure how old they were when she died. Well, but and I, I don't Especially when you're trust. dying of cancer, wouldn't you go and talk to a, an attorney and right. write a will and get all that? And Yeah, I don't know, like, the trust piece, but I know, too, that, like, I had something, I don't think it's in place now that I'm 33, but um, where... It says in a will that if something were to happen, I would receive X amount of money. But if I'm under the age of, I think it was like 20 something, I, someone like basically oversaw that money that I would like request mm. it from, mm-hmm. you know, almost like mm-hmm. a conservator, oh. but just <laughs> of the money until I reached a certain age and now I'm past that age. But like- you could have even yeah. at least done that. There are a lot you know? of op- – because I'm sure a lot of people, especially if they're, like, dealing with something like stage four cancer, they're concerned about their young kids, their teenage mm-hmm. kids coming into a ton of money. Like, obviously, you don't want to give your right. 16-year-old $150,000. I mean, yeah, I guess. They'd be blowing that. Thanks so much for listening, peeps and creeps. We'd love to hear from all of you, so find us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at CreepersPod. And you can also email us any feedback or case suggestions at CreepersPod at gmail.com. Also, a big thanks to everyone who's left us a review on Apple Podcasts. They really help us out in a big way. So if you liked this episode, we'd love it if you'd take a minute to give us a five-star rating and a review. And be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll have our next episode as soon as it drops when I'll tell Mogab another wild story. Bye, peeps and creeps. <laughs>